the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Verse 5, he says, Oh Lord God, cease, I pray. Oh that Jacob may stand for you small. He says, Please don't do this. Please, Lord, in your mercy, I pray, cease from bringing this calamity. And verse 6 again. The Lord relented, and he did not bring the disaster upon the people that he had intended. A man stood in the gap and interceded and prayed. Don't underestimate your prayer before God and how the Lord may in fact respond to your prayers and give mercy where otherwise there would have been consequences. This is what happens here. Do you ever wonder if your prayers even matter? Maybe you've concluded that if God has already made up his mind about what's going to happen, why should you pray about it? Could your prayers really change God's mind? In today's message, Pastor Gary will explain that your prayers are incredibly important. Not only are your prayers the key to communicating with God, but God might even change the outcome of a situation because of your prayers. That's what he did with Amos. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Amos as he begins his message, Vertically True in a Crooked World. in the book of Amos, because we're closing out the Old Testament by looking at these last 12 books of the Old Testament, which are commonly known in your Bibles as the minor prophets. Again, they are minor prophets because the books that they write are generally shorter and their messages are more succinct. For today, we're looking at the book of Amos and just kind of giving you a summary theme from each of these closing 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament and so as I've been doing, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you just a basic background on the book itself and on the writer. So a little bit of information on Amos. Uh, he was a prophet who was an ordinary unschooled guy whom the Lord chose to be a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. Though he was from the southern kingdom of Judah, God called him to speak to the northern kingdom. Remember that Israel is divided at this time. They've gone through a civil war. And so the larger part of the country to the north is known as Israel, but the southern part of the country is known as Judah. And Amos grows up in uh, Judah in a a little tiny town called Tekoa, which is about 10 miles southeast of Bethlehem. But God calls him to speak to the northern kingdom of Israel. He is not mentioned anywhere else outside of his book. His name, Amos, is the same in English as it is in Hebrew, and the meaning of Amos in Hebrew is burden. 
So not, not the nicest name for your kid. You know, like, what should we name our kid? Uh, Big Burden. Let's just call him Amos. Uh, but perhaps his parents already had insight from the Lord that this guy would be raised up and called as a prophet and that he would carry a burden for God's people. That's what his name means. So he was not a prophet by vocation, and he admitted uh, that he felt super unqualified for such a task. In chapter 7, verse 14, you can look ahead or just listen, he admits in chapter 7, verse 14, he says, I was no prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet. Like, I, I don't come from a family of prophets. Uh, I, did, I did not attend. Actually, this is something that was common in the Old Testament, the school of the prophets. Uh, I'm not trained or equipped as a prophet. God just called me in this way. And he also tells us at the end of verse 14 of chapter 7 what he was doing at the time. He says, I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit which is basically figs. And so he wasn't really a prophet by vocation. He was basically a sheep farmer and a fig picker. That's what he was when God called him. And so he's just an ordinary down-to-earth guy. Those are often the people that God chooses. God wants to be most glorified. And so he will often choose just ordinary people to do his extraordinary work. And Amos was such a guy. Now you're going to see in his writings, that because of his background, just as a farmer and a fig picker, he's, he's a very down-to-earth, plain talker. And because of that, there are some times that he just, he just shoots straight. You kind of know people like that, that you, just, you know where they're coming from because they tell you, like they're right out in the open. And so Amos has no problem in chapter 4, verse 1, calling the women of Israel fat cows of Bashan. I mean, he's a sheep farmer. He's just like, you know what? These ladies, they're just cows of Bashan. That's just the way he talks. I, you know, don't, don't kill the messenger. I'm just telling you some of the ways that he talks here. He ministers during the reigns of two kings, it tells us in verse 1, during the reigns of King Uzziah, who is king of the south in Judah, and also during the reign of King Jeroboam, who's to the north in Israel. And so his ministry fits somewhere mid-8th century B.C., 760 to 750 B.C., thereabouts. And um, even though his name is not mentioned outside of his book, his ministry would basically fit the time of 2 Kings chapter 14 and 15. So with all that background, let's take a look here in chapter 1. I'm just going to highlight the first two verses, and then we'll read from chapter 2. But in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it tells us, The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw, notice, these are visions the Lord gives him, and then he writes it down, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. And then you'll notice in the verses following, which I won't read through, but starting in verse 3 into chapter 2, God then basically denounces eight nations slash regions for their various sins. And he starts with Damascus, the same capital city we're talking, Syria. 
uh, one of the oldest uh, continuously occupied cities in the world, Damascus. He denounces Damascus, Syria. He denounces also in chapter one, Gaza, the same area today known as the Gaza Strip along the Mediterranean. Uh, He denounces Tyre, which is up in Lebanon. And he denounces Edom and Ammon and Moab, which are parts of the region today on a map which Jordan occupies. And then in chapter 2, if you look ahead to chapter 2, he, God denounces his own people. He starts with Judah, the southern kingdom, and then he moves to Israel, the northern kingdom, which is where Amos will direct most of his attention. But here in chapter 2, I'll just read these two pronouncements against Judah and then Israel in chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. By the way, that's loosely translated like this. Um, For three sins, I've had mercy, but the fourth one, it's going to meet my judgment. And he says, because they have, reading still in verse four, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments, their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. And then verse 6, he denounces Israel to the north. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. This passage that I just read here from chapter 2 between verses 4 through 8 is a very overwhelming picture for Amos. He is describing the spiritual condition of the people of first Judah to the south, and then primarily he focuses on Israel to the north. Um, He speaks here, as we just read, about injustice in the courts. Um, He speaks here about idolatry in the land. He even writes about prostitution in the temple where one man sleeps with the same prostitute that his son sleeps with on a different day. A man who keeps himself warm with a garment extorted from the poor. A man who toasts his success with wine bought with money dishonestly gained. And so this is the condition that Israel is in at this particular time. And then Amos focuses his attention on Israel. That's where he's primarily called. And he talks about in chapter 4, if you just want to glance ahead at chapter 4, he talks about how God tried to get their attention through various means and methods. And I'll summarize in chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, where God says, I sent famine to try to get your attention because of your sins, but you wouldn't Listen, he says also in that same passage, I withheld rain to get your attention, but you wouldn't listen. He says also in those verses, I struck your gardens and vineyards 
to get your attention, but you wouldn't listen. He goes on in that section to say, I sent plagues as I did to Egypt to get your attention, but he says, you still have not returned to me. So God continues to try to get their attention through various means and methods. He says, you know, I, I sent famine, I, I sent drought. Um, I even brought upon you some of the plagues I brought upon Egypt so that you would kind of connect the dots and realize these are kind of similar to what God did in Egypt. And maybe he's trying to get our attention, but time and time again, they did not heed the warning of the Lord. And so what would it take? You know, what does it take in our lives for God to get our attention? Uh, What would it take here for the people of Israel to finally surrender to the Lordship of, of the Lord? And so in the middle of all of this, so in chapter 2, Amos kind of describes, here's the climate, the condition, the spiritual atmosphere within Israel. And then in chapter 4, he says, this is what God did to try to get their attention. But then in the middle of this book, it's only nine chapters, in the middle, in chapter 5, God inserts a remedy to all this. He's like, okay, these are the things you're doing. This is how I tried to get your attention. Here's how, if you would respond to me, there will be mercy for you. So look ahead in your Bibles to chapter 5, and I'll read verses 14 and 15. In chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, here God inserts a remedy. He offers a remedy to all of this. Chapter 5, verse 14, underline, seek good and not evil, that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Verse 15, underline, hate evil, love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Speaking about Israel. And so God here talks about renouncing evil and embracing good. He said, if if you want me to be with me, if you want me to be with you, if you want my favor to be upon you, if you want my grace to be with you, it's going to start with you renouncing things that are evil and embracing things that are good. And that's what he calls them to. That's how verse 14 begins. That's how verse 15 begins there in, in chapter five, verse 14, seek good and not evil. Verse 15, hate evil, love good. But here's the problem. What if your definition of good and evil are not God's. What if your idea of what is good and what is evil is not God's idea of what is good and what is evil? This is the problem plaguing Israel. They were self-determining people. They decided that they knew best in regards to what was right and what was wrong. They decided that they would define what was right, and what was wrong. And when that happens, they have no hope of being saved. Because God says it begins with you saying what I say is evil and living according to what I say is good. And when the people were not on the same page with God in terms of what was evil and what was good, then there was no remedy for them. Because this is what he's saying here in the middle of chapter 5. It starts with you hating evil and loving good. It starts with you seeking good and not evil. When you're on the same page with me, according to what is right and what is wrong, then there's hope for you. But if you're not on the same page, there's no remedy for you. This is what was plaguing Israel. And frankly, folks, this is still true for us today. It is 
the very problem facing our own culture. Every single one of us must answer this question in order to understand what is right and what is wrong. I'm going to pose the question to you. You don't need to answer out loud. I just want you to ponder it through the course of our study. Here's the question. Who or what is the objective moral standard? Who or what is the objective moral standard? Every single one of us must answer that question in order to understand what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. Now, let me give you a few clues as to what is not the objective moral standard. First of all, government. Government is not the objective moral standard. Secondly, another clue, culture. In terms of what the most popular opinion is and the majority of belief is, that does not define an objective moral standard. And last clue, you, I, are not an objective moral standard. The answer to the question, at least insofar as, if you really believe God and believe the Bible, if you are a follower of Christ, the only clear answer to that question, who or what, is the only objective moral standard, is God. God is. Not government, not culture, not any single one of us. This is the very thing that God was wanting through the prophet Amos, Israel to understand. That their idea of an objective moral standard was not right. Because they had made themselves their own objective moral standard and not God. And God comes along and says, no, 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 no. We got to get on the same page about what is evil and what is good. And, and so long as you all are defining for yourselves what is evil and good, you have no hope of being saved. If, however, you get to the place where you seek good and not evil, where, where you hate evil and love good, if you get there on the same page with me, then there's hope for you. Otherwise, there's not. So in chapter 7, if you'll turn your Bibles to chapter 7, here's what God says to kind of get them in that direction, to help them get on the same page with him. In chapter 7... I'll read verses 1 through 9. Here's what, here's what Amos writes. Thus, the Lord God showed me. Behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. And so it was, when they had finished eating the grass of the land, that I said, O oh Lord God, forgive, I pray, oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small." So, verse 3, the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Thus, verse 4, the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God called for conflict by fire, and it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. And then I said, O Lord God, cease, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So, verse 6, the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Verse 7, thus he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. 
The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. All right, pause there, your attention. That last part sounds a little doom and gloom, but he's actually inserting some mercy there. Otherwise, he says, if they don't respond, there's no hope for them, and I'm going to bring the sword against the household of Jeroboam. But in this passage I just read with you, God shows Amos three visions. The first two are visions about impending judgment. The last one is a vision about undeserving mercy. So if you'll notice in your Bibles, look again at what we just read there. In verse 1, he says, thus the Lord showed me. In verse 4, thus the Lord God showed me. In verse 7, thus he showed me. So these are three indications of three different visions that God shows Amos. And the first one, starting in verse 1, is about impending judgment that may come in the form of locusts. Now, we talked about this when we were in the book of Joel. One of the ways that God got the attention of his people was through a plague of locusts. It was spelled out in the book of Deuteronomy that uh, when God's people were in disobedience to him, one method he used was to bring a swarm of locusts to destroy the agriculture. It would affect them economically in every way. It was, it was a wake-up call. And God shows Amos in advance, I'm going to send a swarm of locusts. And in the first vision, when Amos gets this, in verse uh, 2, he cries out to God and asks for mercy. And he, and he says, oh, Lord God, forgive, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand for you small. He says, please, you know, don't do this to your own people. Don't bring the swarm of locusts. And so it tells us in verse 3, God relented, which is a statement of his mercy. God did not bring the intended consequence upon his own people. Why? Because Amos stood in the gap. He interceded. He prayed. He asked God for mercy. Please don't bring this upon your people. And so God relented. Second vision, not of locusts. The second vision that starts in verse 4 is about fire. God says, I'm going to bring fire upon the land. It's going to destroy. It's going to devastate the land. And again, Amos, in reaction to this second vision, he cries out in verse 5. He says, oh, Lord God, cease, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand for you small. He says, please don't do this. Please, Lord, in your mercy, I pray. Cease from bringing this calamity. And verse 6, again, the Lord relented. And he did not bring the disaster upon the people that he had intended. A man stood in the gap and interceded and prayed. Don't underestimate your prayer before God. And how the Lord may, in fact, respond to your prayers and give mercy where otherwise there would have been consequences. This is what happens here. And then God gives Amos this third vision starting in verse 7, where there's this vision of the Lord standing on a wall, and the wall was made with a plumb line. And the Lord says to Amos in the vision, what do you see here? What do you see me holding here? And Amos says, a plumb line. And God says, exactly. He says uh, there in the the middle of verse 8, behold, I am setting a plumb line In the midst of my people, Israel, I will not pass by them anymore. In other words, I'm not going to overlook their sins anymore. I am setting in their midst a plumb line. So uh, this is what builders and masons use when they are trying to make sure that a wall that they are building is vertically true. It's just, it's just a plummet, a weight at the end of a string. You, you've seen this, I'm sure. And so it is hung so that then masons or builders can make sure as they're constructing, let's say, for example, like a brick wall, that they are lining it up with the plumb line so that it is vertically true. 
The warnings and prophecies found in the Minor Prophet books can be intense, but they remind you of one thing. God is patient. He doesn't exact judgment on those who have sinned immediately. Instead, God shows mercy. He gives you ample time to come to Him in repentance, handing the wrongs you've committed over to Him and letting His love restore you. Because of that love for His creation, God sent His only Son to die on the cross in your place, taking your sins with Him. Jesus' death provides you the opportunity at a new life and forgiveness for all your wrongs. Are you ready to come to Jesus in repentance today and receive this grace? We'd like to talk more with you, so please give us a call at 703-771-1500. That's 703-771-1500. We also want to invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30 and 11.45 a.m., as well as on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Visit cornerstoneconnection.cc to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. If you're not able to be with us in person, we do offer each service online as well. Again, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc to connect. Thanks for tuning in today for Pastor Gary's message. And we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still you know.